Hey everyone, welcome to Twig 59. Today we will be covering four articles. The first is the top 1% of app store publishers drive 80% of new downloads by TechCrunch. The second is Valve's Half-Life series continues with Half-Life Alix for VR by Polygon. The third is Microsoft's Xbox streaming app isn't official yet, but it's already way better than Google's new video game service by Business Insider. And finally, where net promoter score goes wrong by Harvard Business Review. And so today we've got myself, Joe Kim, we've got Mishka. Mishka back on to defend himself. <laughs> we have Eric, and we also have a special guest, uh, Stan. Um, Eric, actually, you want to introduce your friend, Stan? Sure. Uh, you know, Stan is a really good industry friend. I've actually met his wife and his children. Uh, he's also one of those rare people that not only has a head on his shoulders, but also works his ass off. Um, it must be some kind of Korean thing, something us white people don't understand. But nonetheless, he works his ass off. He's been at Ubisoft, CBS Interactive. He suffered at AEA for a few years. And most recently, he started his own consultancy and primarily around consumer insights at this, his company called Beta Hat. Um, and I'll let him explain a little bit more on that, but basically it focuses on both qual and quant consumer insights analysis for video games and other industries, right? So, you know, I have a lot of issues with consumer insights just in general, particularly as it relates to mobile. But I think Stan kind of has this ability to cut through the bullshit and get to like the real heart of the issues. Um, and, you know, basically using consumer insights with the right lens, which I think a lot of people tend not to do, particularly in mobile. Anyway, and there are very, 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 very few people that actually can change my mind on things. And Stan is one of those guys that can do it on a semi-regular basis. Uh, not that he's always right by any stretch, but, <laughs> but he's, he has some great insights. Uh, why don't you just uh, give yourself an uh, overview of what you're doing now and, you know, a shameless plug. Hi, all, and, and thanks for having me on today. Um, so I've only been a listener to the pod for the last few months, but I've been a big fan of the site. So I've mainly, you know, I've mainly been a PC console guy for the majority of my career. Uh, but, you know, the more and more I get into doing mobile free-to-play type research, the site's actually been an awesome resource for me to get up to speed on the mobile and free-to-play space. So, like, thank you guys for actually having this site and having this resource. So it's been great for me. Um, so just a little bit about myself. So um, uh, I founded a boutique market research agency called Beta Hat a few months ago, focused on uh, supporting go-to-market strategy for the games industry and sort of gaming adjacent industries, primarily through consumer insights and behavioral data. You know, think like surveys, focus groups, and stuff like that. Um, and I've worked with and, you know, um, you know, or have worked with like most of the major publishers and brands in the space. Uh, so I'll just keep this as short as possible, but just in terms of my history. So I've been in the industry since about 2003, 2004. Um, and throughout my career, I've tended to be in these sort of quasi consultative independent contributor type roles. So I first cut my teeth as a research vendor for EA. And uh, one of the projects that I worked on in sort of the infancy of my career was uh, EA was trying to figure out how to uh, predict video game sales uh, without the use of historical sales data or pre-order numbers. And, um, you know, that was one of the, I was the first successful sort of endeavors that I got into, like within the game space. And I think, um, and that was really just using consumer interest data. Um, and then, uh, you know, that really taught me a whole lot about like what works and what doesn't within the industry, like dynamics and, and all that kind of stuff. Like when you're just starting out in the industry, like just having that exposure was really helpful. Uh, then I was at Ubisoft for a few years as a strategic planner, then went on to uh, CBS Interactive, uh, primarily GameSpot. Um, and this is around 2010 when social media was really starting to turn the entire online media industry kind of on its head. So kind of navigating through those challenges was pretty interesting. Um, and interestingly enough, like I was also involved in the podcast business for a few years because uh, I was managing the giant bomb brand for a period of time. Uh, so accidentally fell into that business and I got to say like it was super fun. Um, was at EA for a couple of years afterwards and then uh, came into uh, the consulting space again. So thank you guys for having me. Cool. Glad to have you here. And Mishko, why, why are you back on, on this episode? 
<laughs> well, I was I was taking a, a couple of. First of all, let's let's talk about this podcast. You guys have been really doing a great job. Like, thing is, I'm not on the podcast, and I'm truly enjoying listening. So I'm like Stan. I'm happy to be on this podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, <laughs> and um, clearly, the guests are getting better and better. Um, nothing against the first ones. Like just just awesome guests. And even the articles, like JK, you put in a Harvard Business Review as one of the articles here. Like we're definitely opening it up from from uh, I don't remember what we had at one point, which was just uh, just utter garbage. I think it was in Gadget or something like that. <laughs> so so there's tons of leveling up now. I'm I'm back because uh, I'm I'm here on a business trip in Ireland, actually with one of the big partners. Um, and they, they actually wanted me to give a shout out so they were, that we're broad, broad broadcasting from Ireland. Anyways, um, I'm here because Eric trashed me last, last time. <laughs> like properly, like really properly trashed me back and forth. And I do agree in many ways with him and I love it. I'm just listening and, and kind of like laughing that I'm getting my <laughs> ass kicked in <laughs> through the predictions, which is definitely fun. And I have the opportunity to come back on the show and not defend myself, but maybe just dig deeper because uh, <laughs> I like making stupid predictions. So yeah, I'm back. All right, awesome. And just one other quick update in terms of industry news before we go into the articles, but uh, there was an article that noted that Roblox Mobile did cross 1 billion in lifetime revenue. So shout out to the, the Roblox guys. Uh, the revenue for Roblox Mobile has been steadily increasing from know, 5 million in the first quarter of 2016 to now 143 million in the third quarter of this year. So looks like, you know, Roblox is, is definitely doing really well and um, really great for, for those guys. Yeah, I would say just, you know, Roblox continues to be a juggernaut, you know, despite all the things that have been thrown against it, um, Fortnite, Apex, Minecraft, The Sims, you know, Roblox continues to find their market and continues to grow. And they also continue to innovate on the tools and the technologies and for the customers to create the content um, and also allowing for building of new content and new models. I think fundamentally Roblox's challenge is to expand beyond its current younger demographic and continue to build out the infrastructure and tools and, and developer network to appeal to the broadest audience possible. So hats off to those guys. Those guys are kind of amazing. Right. And before we jump into the articles, Mishka, did you want to, did you want to uh, talk about COD Mobile? Yeah, yeah, definitely that. And I wanted to also say um, about Roblox or not say, but just kind of ask you, like, was in that part of that news, did they talk about the revenue share that they do with the developers? Because uh, it's, it's a really interesting model where, where the people inside Roblox are creating these mini games and they're actually earning through that. And it's kind of like a question when, does the revenue become so significant that we're going to see more professional developers entering the space? My sense is that they are actually not pursuing professional developers, although in my humble opinion, they probably should. But I'm not really 100% sure on that strategy. Maybe someone else on the pod has a... Yeah, they are trying to pursue professional developers, you know, subtly. I, I, and uh, as far as I know, I believe they've got like a... Was, is it a $20 million fund or something like that? But I think the, yeah, the but best... I would say that, well, first of all, it's a, you know, closely probably held secret of how much they're paying their developers, but they do pay them quite a bit of money. And some people are making I, I thought it was announced, but yeah. We oh, can really? I don't know. But nonetheless, uh, it just seems like to the extent they, they're trying to keep their uh, developer base in, in, on the small side, not like going after big publishers or big developers. But I may be wrong. I don't know. Yeah, because I'd argue that they, they don't have UA quite yet in the in the, that platform so the ua cost must be spent and even if you can earn you know tens of thousands hundreds of thousands per game if your cost of acquisition is is in cents then it, it it you know it's profitable and you can actually buy out some of these games from from you know the, the existing developers for a few tens of thousands and actually promote them with really cheap um cpis i don't know just throwing out there maybe maybe this is just total bullshit i haven't played roblox so just kind of wondering if it continues growing, then it becomes a platform. Yeah, we'll see how they evolve it. All right, what about COD Mobile? How are you oh going to defend your terrible prediction? So, 
I do agree. I was a little bit of bullish and I was maybe because I said uh, I was thoroughly excited about the gameplay and I was just so into it and I'm still incredibly into it. We play it every time at the office and um, I have to talk about their, you know, you're right. It's probably not going to be a billion dollar franchise. Uh, you think? I thought, I thought, listen, <laughs> I thought that the Garena version would come out much better, but for some reason it's not really getting the traction. There's a Korean version as well, and Koreans don't seem to give a fuck about this game. I don't understand why. Uh, we have to investigate this thing. Uh, why don't you? So you could listen to the podcast, and I could. You could listen to what I said, and you. Could, I could tell you exactly why it's not going to work. But okay. Oh my god! But it's doing pretty well in the West. So recently, they released the season two, and they got the new winter theme. You know, Christmas and all. They got the premium free battle pass. Uh, the controller support, the zombie mode came out. And then the way they brought out zombie mode was actually pretty interesting because they did a lot of um, UA in the beginning, the playable ads, and people were able to choose which uh, which kind of mode they're going to play. And about something like 80% chose the zombie mode in the playable ad. And that gave the indication that they should be developing zombie mode next. So shout out for Iron Source for doing this creative. Uh, they got a new multiplayer map. They got the limited holiday theme map. They got the battle royale improvements. And listen, the revenues peaked. They are roughly 20% from their launch week revenues. Um, they don't, don't have any kind of a spikes in installs. I kind of expected them to do re-engagement advertising and see a better, bigger spike in installs, but there don't seem to be that. And as a personal opinion, I love the gameplay. Uh, we got the Thai group of people playing it, but Eric, you're right. There are issues around monetization. I haven't bought the new battle pass. And if you look at the, uh, the deconstructor fun blog, uh, we have the new post on call of duty mobile. And basically we kind of break it down into three reasons what, what, what this game needs to do in order to monetize better. And that is to focus on providing a deeper chase for the most valuable cosmetics in the game and drive their value. So the three elements are kind of doubled down on the weapons um, and especially add some kind of a gameplay impact to the weapon skins that will make them more valuable. Uh, the, the, the second element is customization. So there are currently five elements player can customize inside of a soldier. And if you look at PUBG, it's almost double at eight different elements. So there's the hats and the glasses and whatnot, and those can be added. And the third element is the quantity over, over quality over quantity. So they should start, you know, reducing the emphasis on lethal grenades and all those tactical grenades as cosmetic item slots because, you know, you can't really see them and it doesn't make any sense and you don't care what kind of a grenade you have because, I mean, you just don't see it. And, and they need to be more bold uh, with the both weapon skins and the outfit sets. So they kind of started off with, with typical Call of Duty, but they need to add, like, you know, the bunny rabbits, the doctors, the police officers. I think they added the police officer, and I want that skin. If I could pay to get that skin, I would do that because it's just fun, and they haven't done a lot of those fun things, but I think they will be adding them, and I think the game will continue to monetize. But, you know, Eric, yeah, you were right. You are right. I was wrong, but I still love this game. I still love it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I thought I would have to, like, come at you a little bit harder now, but since you're <laughs> capitulating so easily... Um, but there was a brief spike spike when uh, season two came out and, you know, not enough to really change the 12 month expectations. Uh, and we're already seeing revenue declines uh, from that peak of when the, when the new season came out, but revenue in per install is still anemic at like 36 cents versus basically a dollar eight for Fortnite at this point. You know, another way to look at it is that when the, when the new season came out for Fortnite, it went up to like 2 million per day for three or four days. Um, on less than half of the amount of downloads that Call of Duty has gotten. And Call of Duty's spike uh, during this new season was half of that. So that kind of implies that retention is far lower for Call of Duty than, than it was for Fortnite at this point, um, given the, you know, the vast differences of downloads. So we shall see. I still think you know 150 is probably the over-under now versus, I think, 200 before for 12 months. Um, but maybe they will look at your post and try to adjust and fix their monetization. Who knows? Yeah. I, the weirdest thing is that the um, I'm not the rumor guy. JK is the rumor guy. But <laughs> but um, feet on the ground are telling us that, that it's not really the Activision who is uh, holding back a monetization. 
it's actually Tencent. And they apparently they have this long view on how they're going to make tons of money. And they're actually pushing back on Activision's effort to monetize a little bit more aggressively. So, you know, that kind of gives me a warm feeling that I might be even a little bit right because the Chinese are looking far more ahead than this quarter. Or, or maybe they they don't know what they're doing. So, I, I don't, don't know, know man. <laughs> Aligning yourself with the Chinese is probably not a smart move, but we'll see. I think uh, the other thing that you have to keep in mind is if, if this could have some success in Asia, if it comes out in Asia, but I'm not incorporating any of that in my expectations. I'm just talking about the Western skews. Um, yeah. But anyway. All right, moving on to this next article. Who's in charge of this All one? Right. I think, Michigan, right, before we jump in there, I just looked up uh, Roblox developer payout. So it looks like they're on track for $100 million this year, uh, up from seven okay. last year. So pretty, pretty good. So, but yeah. go ahead, go ahead so, Michigan. So, yeah, so it's enough for like small startups to start entering it. Um, all right. Article number one. The top 1% of App Store publishers drive 80% of new downloads. So this was an article on TechCrunch and SensorTau was the author for this. The current app store ecosystem doesn't favor the indie developer. That is a true revelation. Uh, according to new data from SensorTower, the top 1% publishers globally accounted for whooping 80% of the total um, 29.6 billion app downloads in the third quarter of 2019. It is concerning how uneven, I'm quoting this, how uneven the market for the new apps remains, especially considering that the number of available apps continues to expand, which makes the competition even more difficult. And then the article goes through so many numbers. I have to actually read this you know, a few times. I'm, apparently, I'm not that good with numbers when I have to read it all over and again. So anyway, the number of apps were able to achieve at least 1,000 installs has been declining over the same period from 30% to 26. And when we start focusing more on games, uh, we can see that 1% of the publisher or 1,080 of total 108,000 publishers generate 82% of all installs. The remaining 99% got 18% of the install. So over 1,000 developers generated 99% of the installs. Uh, in terms of revenue, we see that 445 publishers that make up the top 1% generated 15.5 billion in revenue uh, or 95% of all revenue. Okay, so let me just cut off all this numbers and, and so forth. So none of these trends, none of these are new trends and Sensor Towers also notes this. There hasn't been much fluctuation in top 1% share of installs and revenue for years. That means that the majority of publishers will compete for the minority of new users and installs. Okay, firstly, this article is a little bit over dramatic and it really, in my opinion, fishes for clicks by throwing a lot of numbers with these outrageous ratios, like 1% makes 80% and then so forth. But the fact is that this happens anywhere in entertainment. And you know, there's some comments. I was kind of looking for the comments on this this article, and you can see that people are pointing out the same thing. You know, top one percent of musicians probably take the vast majority of revenue on Spotify. Top football players take the vast majority of salary, and top movies take vast majority of ticket revenues. You could do the same thing, and like, it's really hard to make an indie movie and make a lot of money through it because the Avengers take most most of the revenues and so forth. But but since we're talking numbers. Uh, let's back up this with some of the numbers that that you know that we've we've been generating. So when you look at the um, the downloads, the spend, and engagement, uh, we can all see we can see that this continues to climb. So when we look at the global game downloads from 2017 to 2019, they've actually grown by only 15%. So the number of downloads, global game downloads, has been um, quite stable for the for the past few years and actually the uh, the downloads are the growth of downloads is decreased uh, there's tremendous growth in the uh, the consumer spend from 2017 to 2019 we see that the growth of spend is 35 percent on mobile games and we can also see that the, the that what really grew during the last couple of years is the time spent in games and that grew from that grew actually by 55 percent. And when we look at the games and, and not just the apps, we can see that the consumer spend 
when we look at iOS and Google Play, the consumer spend on games accounts for 75% of all revenue. But at the same time, what this article fails to show, it fails to show, it, it kind of creates this image of Mount Everest where, where only the top is the one that is surviving and everybody else is, is kind of screwed. But in fact, when we look at the numbers, especially when we look at the top of the, of, of the, uh, of the app store, we can see that it's getting wider. So we can see that in, in 2016, uh, games that generated more than uh, minimum 5 million was, was 1,200. And then in 2018, it was 1,900. And in 2019, it was 2,200. So this number of games that generate X amount of revenue is constantly increasing. And we can also see that the top is evolving at the same time. So this Sensor Tower article kind of pointed that the top is stale, but we can see that since 2017, the top 50 games and top 50 grossing have like half, over half of them have changed. And it, we can also see when we look at the numbers, whether we look at average or median, it takes about nine months for a game to reach top 100 if they're going to reach out of the games that reach top 100 grossing it took them about nine months and through uh through the last year about 28 games new games entered the top 100 so there are there are changes and this article kind of paints uh through the data a very drastic image and and it is true that only the top developers and top publishers are, are there but it's not quite that way uh, in my opinion the top is is steep but it's getting wider so i don't you know a lot of developers are now looking a lot of publishers are looking at top 200 instead of only looking at top 100 because the top 200 is actually quite meaningful nowadays uh, and not the top 100. i've done this analysis for games many many times and i would definitely not use the top one percent of publishers i don't even know if that's yeah. a meaningful stat i would focus like more on the top 20 or top 10 publishers and to see how much revenue they drive. And to your point, it provides a better picture, but it also does show that the, the top 10, top 20 are, are driving less revenue um, over the past few years compared to uh, in 2012 to 2014, which basically kind of sums up your conclusion is that the market is getting broader for success out there. And, and it doesn't paint this negative, like super negative picture that, the, that this article seems to do. Um, yeah. Now, having said that, I agree with the overall premise, right? Is that the market has evolved really fast and the top publishers are driving a majority of the revenue. But to your point earlier, that's what all markets tend to do. <laughs> so nonetheless, um, it's not as bad as this article would kind of illustrate. The, the problem here is that with this study, they basically fucked the denominator. You, you know what I mean? And what I mean by that is they're basically including anyone as a publisher, right? So if, if a junior <laughs> high school student publishes an app, well, they're, they're a publisher, but, and, and even in some of the, you know, statistics that they mentioned, uh, so the report noted that only 26% of the publishers surveyed were able to achieve 1,000 installs, right? Yeah, so that's, that's not a publisher. <laughs> exactly, like, right? You're publishing to your friends. You know? <laughs> yeah, so I, I agree the headline was designed for clickbait, and so like a study that actually looks at real publishers would, would actually be a lot more meaningful because again, the denominator is pretty screwed. All right, Stan, next one. A couple of weeks ago, Valve announced a new Half-Life game. Um, and I think most of the people in the gaming industry has always been very excited about what's going to happen with Half-Life, but it seems like um, they announced a new entry into this long-awaited series as essentially a Google Cardboard game. And I think it's caused a lot of confusion within the industry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so it's kind of like jokes aside, like, yeah, you know, it's a VR game. Um, I think we were all waiting for, like, the next Half-Life 3. We didn't quite get Half-Life 3. We got, like, a Half-Life 1.5. So, overall, like, my first impressions on this is that I'm, I'm generally mixed. But I think at the same time, there's uh, something a little exciting about this, mainly because, like, the VR space has been pretty stagnant for quite some time and really hasn't reached... Uh, that sort of like critical mass that we were all hoping for at the beginning. Um, 
but I think like there's two parts of my brain here. So like my fanboy brain is flashing all these green lights saying, yes, yes, yes. Like this is awesome. And then my analyst brain is saying like, what the hell? Like, why would you just do this in VR? But from a developer's perspective, like I can actually see how this is quite exciting. Um, it's just from a business perspective that it's a bit puzzling. Um, but, you know, generally like some of the issues that I see with this title is, um, you know, number one, it's a VR only experience. And generally with VR headsets, uh, we're seeing that they're mostly clunky and, and people just don't want to wear them for an extended period of time. And if this is going to be a full fledged half-life experience at 15 hours, I think half-life two is 15 hours. Uh, do people actually want to wear these headsets for more than an hour at a time? Um, and so I think like that's going to be kind of a challenge that uh, is going to be an interesting one for them to solve. So are people just going to be able to bust through that and just say, hey, I just want to play this Half-Life experience for, for, for that longer period of time. Uh, can we extend those section lengths um, meaningfully? Uh, but overall, I think that's going to be a major hurdle for them to cross. But ultimately, I, I think I see this as an opportunity to Valve to just take the, the sort of dearth of content and just kind of take it by the horns and say, hey, there is no sort of tentpole content that is pushing VR uh, into the mainstream or something that is meaningful to talk about. Um, and I think it's a bold move by them. And so if we take a look at the history of Half-Life and Valve, uh, they've always taken each Half-Life as an, as an opportunity to showcase some type of new breakthrough technology, whether it's narrative storytelling with Half-Life 1, uh, with Half-Life 2, it was the physics with the gravity gun. Um, and so with Half-Life Alex, it's not surprising to me that they want to really push forward VR as uh, the sort of technology that they want to uh, kind of push forward here and show some innovation. Uh, the problem here is that Half-Life 1 and 2 uh, was developed on PC that was accessible by everyone. And so for Half-Life Alex, uh, they want to follow the same development philosophy, but um, the sort of audience that they're speaking to is pretty limited. Yeah, I mean, my cynical hat would say that they agreed that this thing like four or five years ago when they thought the install base would be like 30 million by this point. Um, but if they were to do it over again, they, and when the install base is probably a million or a million and a half, if that, <laughs> they probably wouldn't have greenlit this one. So fundamentally, I mean, this is a little bit bittersweet for most Half-Life fans, but all, all reports seem to seem that this game is actually going to be pretty good. Um, and unfortunately, you know, Valve is no longer really a game developer. I think they outsourced this one. Um, all the talent they had was gone long ago. So anyway, I'm surprised that they even have enough people or resources to even build this type of game. But I'm curious. I'm actually, I just ordered the Oculus Rift S or something because I have the original Rift uh, for, my, for Christmas for my, for my son just because the kids love it and it's just a unique thing to have at the house, frankly. But uh, I don't think this moves the overall needle for VR, but it's, you know, another you know, another cool AAA experience on VR that it kind of helps push the narrative maybe going forward, maybe, you know, five, 10 years from now, it'll be more meaningful. Who knows? Um, anybody else have a take on this? Yeah, for me, this kind of reminds me of the Blizzard announcement on Diablo. It's just like, you know, they're announcing a product that, that really the audience, you know, that's not quite the product that they were looking for. <laughs> Uh, it's, and it's and then parallel. besides that, I, I just had fun reading a lot of the comments, right? And so a lot of the comments were mainly disrespecting Valve and VR generally. And a couple of funny ones I, I, I wanted to, to share. The first was from a guy named Rath who stated, Valve's commitment to this joke is pretty impressive to be honest. <laughs> then uh, from a dude named Sly the Coop who wrote, dude, wow, never have I gone from flaccid to hard to flaccid to fast. <laughs> anyway. Uh, you're, so Joe... you're so crass, Joe. What would your mom say? Oh, my God. I, I like how Joe has a PTSD from that one BlizzCon that he attended where they revealed Diablo. Like I, he goes back to that moment like at least once a quarter. He was like, this reminds me of Diablo. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, the, the comments are definitely, you know, just judging from the comments, it, it, the, the audience reaction does not seem very positive. 
Yeah, I, I, I think I think generally like VR just has a content problem as a whole. Um, you know, if, if you go onto like the Oculus Store or the Steam Store, it it is just full of just seemingly just shovelware left and right. And you know, Beat Saber is the only sort of flagship title that uh, people are playing that is saying that is somewhat polished. Um, and I, I think what's also interesting about this, and this is kind of flying under the radar a little bit, is that the Source 2 SDK is also releasing with Half-Life Alex. And, you know, and, and I'm not a developer myself, but, you know, the last time they released uh, a full SDK for Source 1, um, you know, it gave birth to a lot of, um, you know, really... I would say innovative and um, sort of mass market products like uh, Team Fortress and Counter-Strike. And um, so if it gives developers tools to create really sort of high quality experiences, um, I think that could be an upside for this. Yeah, well, I don't know, we'll see. All right, next article. Microsoft Xbox streaming app isn't official yet, but it's already better, way better than what Google's new video same game service. So this was kind of an opinion piece from Kevin Webb at, oh my God, what are, I forgot the uh, site, doesn't matter. Anyway, um, oh, Business Insider. Actually, it was a pretty good article. Anyway, it says, you know, basically the Project X Cloud is a new, uh, the video game service that uh, allows you to use Xbox One or an Android phone. Um, xCloud during its test period uh, can stream your own collection of games from Xbox at home. Um, the technology evidently is very similar to Stadia, uh, but of course, Microsoft has a lot more stable of IPs and games that they can you can play on it. And then, you know, Google kind of is hoping that that uh, that the, the user base will basically get rid of their consoles and move over to Stadia while Microsoft's platform is uh, geared towards those that already own an Xbox or a console that want to just use uh, supplement their experience. So fundamentally my key take here is that it basically supplements the existing Xbox business and you get more than double the content for free from their service versus uh, Stadia. So you don't have uh, the option of, of consuming content the way you want to, but I'm sorry. You basically are able to consume the content the way you want to, as opposed to being forced to to do it in a certain way with Stadia. Um, and I frankly think that, and I've said, I said this over a year ago, is that, that Microsoft will have the most strategy because it makes more sense to have an a la carte option than it does to force feed any type of subscription service on people that, uh, in, in which you don't really consume content that way. Um, finally, I think the other thing is uh, that it's just really unclear if the streaming will ever really re revolutionize gaming the way, uh, you know, streaming, you know, video change television. And after decades of building an industry around premium console launches, collectible hardware and platform exclusive games, getting gamers to fully embrace a, a streaming will acquire a major cultural shift. And so this is a quote from his article. So this has been my argument all along is that like, changing the way players behave and players play games is going to be the biggest challenge even 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 more so than the content issue um, is going to be really a big challenge is like having people play all you can eat games it's just a different completely different idea a different consumer behavior than buying the games that they want on an on a la carte option so um, so basically he just be reiterate all they could do and I think what where Microsoft has an advantage is they not only have the content advantage but they also have again as a supplement to what they already provide. For, for, for consumers so that they can try it and see if it's something that, that appeals. And that's just a much more stronger place to be than trying to build this from scratch the way uh, Stadia has done. So uh, any, what's your take there, Stan? Yeah, no, I, I think I'm, you know, I totally agree with you. And, and a lot of the work that I've done within this space suggests that, you know, a lot of gamers do want this to be more of a supplementary service rather than a Netflix style service. And, you know, this kind of goes to like a lot of the sort of investment that consumers have already made into the games that they've, that they're playing, um, the uh, sort of hardware that they've purchased. And so a lot of these, uh, a lot of gamers, like they're really bought into the, um, 
uh, bought into their sort of footprint that they've created for themselves or the environment that they've created for themselves. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a major ask to ask people to sort of ditch what they have and then just adopt something else. Um, you know, I, I think one of the biggest issues that I have with this article is um, the very first sentence. And the first sentence is streaming is the future of video games. And I think one of the issues that I have with streaming right now or the thinking around streaming or maybe just the media narrative that's being pushed around streaming is that this is an inevitable future. Um, and I think uh, we could feel more comfortable about saying that if Stadia were to have released a product that would have just even simply delivered 4K streaming. And so like if they're failing to meet even the lowest of expectations, um, and I would say just table stakes is yes, you want low latency, they're having issues there, like getting native 4K like onto the screen instead of upraising the 4K. Um, like that would be, I would say table stakes for saying, yeah, like this is actually a technology that's ready for prime time. But I don't think that we're actually seeing evidence of that right now. Um, uh, I remember at E3 last year, uh, this was during a giant bomb live stream. Um, so they do these, uh, uh giant bomb after dark streams, which, which I think are just amazing. So they get a lot of, uh, guys coming on like late at night, they do these live streams and Phil Spencer was on. And this was really the first time that he had, uh, mentioned, uh, X cloud or their plans around X cloud. And during this casual conversation, he had mentioned that, you know, they were thinking about X cloud as sort of a supplementary service. And, uh, right when I heard that, that just it resonated with me because I just, we just know based on the work that I was doing that consumers just want more flexibility in the way that they're playing. And, and I think Microsoft is answering that in a pretty meaningful way here. Um, and on top of that, just uh, in terms of the content, uh, I think we all know that like, you know, content is king here. And, you know, as, as long as you have like, a pretty deep bench of content that you can support a service with, um, it's going to put you in pole position. So I think they're in a pretty strong position here moving forward. Cool. Yeah. The only, uh, the only comment I have is that it definitely sounds like Project xCloud relative to Stadia sounds a lot more reasonable. But, you know, even for xCloud, the key question still remains about, you know, what is the business model going to be? And, you know, what will users actually pay for? How much are they willing to pay? But I do think a good quote from the article uh, stated the following, which is uh, the competition between Microsoft and Google is less about who has the superior technology and more about who has a stable business model. And I, I think that's fundamentally like the, the big problem at Google is they may be thinking too much about tech and less about, you know, the actual user and, and thinking through the user behavior. Uh, okay. So I, so the last article is where net promoter score goes wrong by Harvard Business Re Review. And so just to give uh, people some context, net, net promoter score or NPS was introduced 16 years ago by Harvard Business Review. And today is a really popular metric used by actually a fairly large number of major game companies, including at least to the best of my knowledge, and according to industry rumors, companies like EA and Wargaming. And I assume if EA is doing that, then Zynga is probably doing it as well. And the metric is based on a single question, which is on a scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend a product X? And um, the score itself you find by taking people you consider promoters or people who, who would rate nine or 10, and subtract off de detractors. And detractors are people who you would classify as scoring anywhere between zero to six. And so a score of plus 50 is generally thought to be excellent, 70 exceptional. That's sort of how this metric works. Uh, but in today's, um, in today's market, this metric has actually become sort of religious where there are people who swear by it and others who hate it. Um, and the way that I've seen it used in game companies sometimes is basically as a kind of play test green light gate with a you know, specific NPS score that is used as a target metric to see if um, a game is actually uh, greenlit or not to a further, further stage. 
And in terms of this particular article, some of the problems that they um, cite with respect to NPS include things like having an NPS score associated with a brand, but not a particular product. So um, basically saying that you might like, you might hate a brand and like a specific product or vice versa. Um, they also mentioned uh, this issue of like product specificity where some people may hate Walmart, but recommend it to a friend who, you know, doesn't have a lot of money or is cheap, you know, or it could be situational where a person may actually recommend Spotify to their friends, but maybe not to their old parents because it's too compli compli uh, complicated. So in short, the criticisms by the author with respect to NPS, I, I don't know, maybe Stan, you can talk, speak to this uh, more concretely, but it didn't seem super relevant to me. Uh, I kind of remember a bunch of flame wars with respect to NPS that talked about different issues and different problems with NPS, but I, I don't know, maybe, maybe you could give us your take on that, Stan? Um, yeah, so, so NPS is a really interesting topic within the research space, um, mainly because I actually see a lot of shitty implementations of NPS. And so, um, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't Harvard, it was developed by Bain. And so a lot of these consulting companies, like, you know, what, what they'll do is they'll create some sort of a framework and say, hey, we've taken this very complex problem that you've had and we've simplified it to this like one specific thing. And if you do this one specific thing, then, we're going to show you a path to success. And so when it's someone like a Bane, everyone says, oh my God, like it's Bane. Like these guys really know what they're talking about. So we need to implement this throughout our entire organization. And um, I think, you know, the, the main issue with NPS is that there is uh, proper um, or effective implementation of it. And then there is, again, the sort of uh, shittier implementations of it. And it really comes down to what the core question that NPS is trying to address. And I think this is where NPS over the course of the last 10 years has really sort of lost its way. And um, what I'm seeing now with a lot of the clients that I do work with is that NPS is just kind of thrown in because, hey, it's just a singular question. Like, why don't we just throw it in for this use case? Or why don't we just throw it in for that use case? And, um, you know, it really kind of bugs me as a researcher, mainly because uh, NPS is supposed to be used for a very specific purpose. And so that purpose is around customer experience. And so uh, the net promoter score and that key question is, how likely are you to recommend this sort of whatever to friends or colleagues? And then that sort of 11 point scale followed by why did you give that response? And so one of the issues with an overly simplified solution to a complex problem is that now you create a solution that is too broad um, to answer any questions in a meaningful way. And so what I mean by that is that NPS score and framework is designed to be universal across a lot of different industries. And so Apple can use it, Google can use it, uh, Kimberly Clark can use it for toilet paper. And um, it could be, you know, it's supposed to be a universal framework, but once you start diving deeper into a specific industry vertical, uh, this is where this universal me measuring framework starts to fall apart because, and this is where the haters start to come into the picture. So the haters will come in and say, you know what, like I need to make a business decision today about this. And you're telling me my MPS score is this, what the hell does this actually mean? And what am I supposed to do about this? And so when you just say, hey, but your score is this, you need to improve the score. There's no actionability against it because it is based on such a broad measurement framework that's supposed to be universal across a lot of different verticals. Um, so, you know, one of the things within the article itself is um, it says, we've come to believe that MPS offers mostly broad strokes akin to a compass pointing companies in the right direction. 
And I think uh, in a time where we have a lot of different signals, if you're working on a game, you have a lot of different signals to understand how your game is doing. Are people happy? Are they pissed off? Um, are they talking about my game in a negative way? Uh, there's social conversations. There's a lot of different sort of signals that you can get uh, that tell you something that you can probably already guess without having an MPS score. So I think, you know, a lot of times when people are faced with an MPS score, they're like, yeah, you know, I kind of already know this stuff. So, you know, in terms of like, in, in terms of, you know, launching an actual program, the key thing you want to be focused on is, well, what can I tell you that you don't already know? And for most of the guys who are deep in the product, there are a lot of things that they do already know. And so this is where sort of MPS needs to be implemented in the right way. And I'll say number one is having the right context. So, um, you know, if the number one thing is really trying to understand uh, whether or not you have a a sort of satisfied customer base or a customer base that is going to evangelize your product, using it in a play testing environment is not the right context to do that. And that actually reminds me a lot of when I was running play tests for some big publishers. And we'd be in a focus group and there would be 12 participants. And then after running through the play tests and saying, hey, here's some of the things that you can like more kind of more on the tactical side, fix about this game, or uh, here's some issues that they're running into. Uh, in the back, they would say, okay, well, can we just have everyone rate the game on a scale of zero to 10? And my question would be like, why do you want them to do that? And what I found is that they would take this number and average it across these 12 people and say, oh, this is what our Metacritic score is gonna be. And I'm like, this is just not, this is not the way this is supposed to work. And I think, uh, you know, when I hear people using NPS for those types of purposes, um, that kind of rings some alarm bells for right. me. And, and they, they ask them to rate the game and not, not rate how likely are they to recommend so that they're actually measuring something differently as well, right? <laughs> yeah, well, even then it was just like, hey, we just want to get some sort of a user review score like before the game comes out. And instead of like focusing on the, the real insights that are coming out of the direct interaction with their product, uh, if they end up getting like a 6.7, like they're focused on that 6.7 and not really focused on like, how do I make this game better, but more, how do I drive this number up? And so I think they sound kind of similar, but they're different in ways where it kind of motivates an organization in to a direction of over-engineering the success metrics. But Stan, it sounds like from what you're saying, there's still a lot of game publishers that are using MPS in, in some way, whether it's right or wrong, they're using it in some way. But is there any specific situation where you would use MPS? And, I, and for, for me personally, I don't like it because I believe that the original um, rationale for MPS was that there was a high correlation between uh, sort of uh, business profitability and MPS score. But since then, that's largely been debunked by a you know, large number of other studies. So then for me, it's just like there's no proof that it's, it's actually even effective at all, right? So... Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a really good point. And again, that goes back to my um, original point of, you know, having a good implementation of it. And really, what is the overarching goal of even measuring MPS or even uh, implementing a measurement framework work like an MPS? Because MPS is, is primarily, again, like supposed to be used for customer experience. And for customer experience, it can mean a couple of things. Like number one, um, how satisfied are people with the products that I have? And I think today within gaming, when we have these more longer tail experiences, uh, the concept of MPS or rather customer experience is becoming more and more important. You want people to stay more engaged. You want people to feel happy about like, you know, the new changes that you're making to the game. And if you make changes where it really pisses people off, you really want to know about that as well. And so a successfully implemented MPS program should be able to tell you and give you the signals that things are going in the right direction and the wrong direction and where things are going in the right direction or the wrong direction. So um, what I've generally seen and what I've implemented in the past is 
yes, you have like an overarching MPS score and like that is important to track. But I think what's more important is what is driving that score and what's really like, um, what are the different sort of uh, facets of that score um, that or or facets of the customer experience that are either detracting from the overall experience or creating a positive experience and then acting on it. Um, and then also having a, 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 an organization that is bought into that as well. And so um, underlying NPS, that follow-up question is really important. Like, why are you giving the score? And so a lot of people tend to disregard that question and really only focus on the number but I think the more important insights come from the reasons why people are giving that score in the first place. And so focusing on that, I think is gonna bring organizations a lot more insight into what is driving that score, but I would not you know, position NPS as an end all be all. And uh, NPS you know, really shouldn't be used as, um, I would say like an overall sort of uh, brand health metric um, because I think every single business is very different. And so if evangelism and customer satisfaction is a key priority, then you want to prioritize MPS. Um, if that is not the top priority and it's really just about more acquisition um, or we already have a very mature product in place and we just want to make sure that people are happy and, you know, um, and we don't need like people to keep evangelizing this product, um, then NPS sort of takes a back seat at that point. So I think it just needs to be used in the right context overall. Okay, cool. I think that's it. Unless there's any remaining comments, Mishka, you got anything? Uh, guys, you went super deep. I got nothing. I mean, I studied. <laughs> I, I have an MBA. I, I was like flabbergasted by you guys. All right, I learned a lot. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, and if there are any uh, listeners who are really interested in um, MPS, there's a really great book on Amazon. I think it's called like The Ultimate Question 2.0. Um, and, uh, you know, any organization that's thinking about implementing it in the right way, um, in a way that's going to move an organization forward, like effectively then, and, or if it's just a question around, is this the right tool for us to use? Um, I would definitely recommend reading that book. Cool. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks guys. Catch you later. Until All right. Time. Thank you guys. Bye. Bye.